Well, good morning and welcome here. It's good to have you here this morning. My name is Luke and I get to serve as the pastor. It's great to have you here. Uh, let me tell you just a real small, quick story. Uh, sometimes we, we wonder if, you know, God really cares about the, the details, uh, if he really cares about the, the small stuff or, or uh, you know, kind of the, the little trivial stuff, that kind of thing. So last week, uh, I called up tech support at Dell because our computer wasn't connecting to the Internet. And they said, well, the, the LAN connection, it sounds like it's fried on the motherboard. We'll send out a tech guy. The tech guy comes out on Thursday, puts in a brand new motherboard, plugs it all in, comes in and he tells us, I tried it out. It's working great. Wonderful. Fantastic. I needed to check out some other stuff. I come back. I, I check it out. Computer's dead. Won't fire up. Fan doesn't start. I can't even get a beep or a chirp out of this thing. Um, computers have it built in where the power button will flash a certain sequence to give you a particular error code. And the error code that it was giving me is that the motherboard was, was damaged, that the motherboard's no good. So I try to track down tech support, blah, blah, blah. I'm on the phone with tech support. I have the computer open. I'm staring into its guts. Um, nothing. He says our motherboard's done. We'll have to send out another tech guy Monday or Tuesday. All right, fine. I'm annoyed, but this is happening. I bring out my laptop this morning, and the computer works fine. The power button is still blinking an error code saying that the motherboard is shot, but the computer works fine. So either God did a miracle, or I just don't know much about computers. Um, I'm, I'm choosing with the miracle side of things. You can kind of take whatever side you want, but that's, that's just kind of my side. So uh, God does care about the small things. A uh, couple other announcements. This uh, yesterday, I guess it was, uh, we had a fundraiser for the VBS missions trip that's going to Utah. Uh, we prepared around 220 portions of smoked pork. Uh, Christine did a lot of the legwork setting it up. Chuck was uh, preparing pork for two, three days beforehand. Uh, we even had people on the side running snow cone uh, machines. Uh, by 12.15, we were completely sold out. Um, and what also was kind of miraculous to me is by 12.15, pretty much everyone stopped showing up. We only had to turn away around five people. Uh, but it was a good time. In all total, we raised over $1,500 that will go towards this, this missions trip. So, yep. <laughs> and if you missed out, it's your loss because it was a good sandwich. Uh, shame on you. Um, so anyway, so all that fund will, all that money will go to uh, uh, to help fund the mission trip, and then what's left over we'll just leave there with greenhouse. Next weekend we are having a church camp out. Don't come here; no one will be here. You'll be by yourself. The doors will probably be locked. It'll be depressing. Uh, so next weekend we're doing our church camp out. We're going to Timberlake, and for those that want to, we're starting on Saturday night. We already have around 68 people who are signed up to come for supper. Uh, Chad is preparing a smoked brisket just because I'm not a vegetarian and we love to eat meat around here. And so we're going with that theme again. And uh, so we're going to have great smoked brisket. Uh, Dean is making homemade ice cream. I think I talked to you about that, right? Yeah. Okay. Dean is on board to make homemade ice cream for a lot of people. Um, and, and there's an overnight option. We have about 60 people spending tonight. Uh, Sunday, we're going to do a church service there by the lake. Bring a lawn chair. Because option B is you just kind of sit in the sand. So bring a lawn chair. Uh, we will provide transportation if you need transportation uh, from the church uh, there and back. Um, 
uh, if you are coming and, and if you have signed up, please sign up. Joanne will email out more details, kind of kind of some of the, the, the fine work details. One thing I, I would say, though, is that when you, when you arrive, the, the place where we'll be spending the night is called the fort. And that's where we'll be doing our meal and that kind of thing. We're asking that people who are showing up on Sunday would bring a side, all right? We'll provide meat and buns and plates and drinks and that kind of thing. But you bring a side to share. What we're doing, though, is we're going to ask people to park at the fort because there's refrigeration and there's outlets at the fort. Because we don't want your side to be left in the hot car for a couple hours because then that leads to this thing called food poisoning, which is unpleasant for all of us. So just head to the fort, take your side, put it in the fridge, plug in your crock pot, whatever you need to do. And then we'll have a church service by the lake. Lydia and Taylor are getting baptized, so that's pretty exciting as well, too. And if you have any questions, talk to Joanne or Jessica Tuckman. Also, next week, we're uh, at the fort, we're n- or at the, at the camp. We're not going to do an offering. So if you guys just double up the week before and after, we should be okay. All right? So no, uh, no, no offering there at the deal. Well, let's have a word of prayer, and then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another good day and for a beautiful day. Lord, we thank you for small miracles that you surround us with every day. Lord, we thank you for the the perfect number of portions prepared on Saturday. We we praise you for technology that works and and we don't even think about it. We praise you for your grace that you give us, your love that you give us, and how you you look after us, how you have saved us, redeemed us, uh, raised us up to be seated with Christ. Lord, we love you and we worship you, and it's it's our privilege and our delight to be able to worship you and use it this morning. Amen. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Stand up with us and worship. If you ever feel like you need to sit down, feel free to do that. Worship him in spirit and truth.
give us eyes to see and hearts to know how big and high and deep, how wide and how long is your love for us. God, that we will be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God so that we can declare your beauty wherever we go. at this point in the service we always like to take a few minutes and just spend a little bit of time in prayer Uh, so please join me in a word of prayer heavenly father we ask that uh, you would just still our minds and calm our hearts as we come before you this morning lord Lord, many of us uh, have likely arrived this morning with burdens, with things that are heavy on our mind, things that are heavy on our hearts, Uh, loved ones that we are worried about, work situations that have us stressed or concerned. Lord, we just want to take all those and lay those at your feet. May we gladly receive them. Sometimes throughout our week, we, we grieve your Holy Spirit, we, we sin, we offend you without even realizing it. So, Lord, we just want to make ourselves available and say, Lord, is there any way that we have grieved you this week that we need to make right before you? pray for our families, for our, our immediate family, for our extended family, that they would grow in love and in knowledge of you and your faithfulness to you and that they would understand who you are and, and the grace that you extend to them. pray for our circle of our friends and and the communities in which we walk and interact with them. Lord, that we would be an encouragement to them and that uh, in our words and our actions that we'd be able to to direct them to you and, and support them and love them as you love them. for those with health needs and concerns immediately in our congregation but others uh, uh, like Tyler Meenkamp who continues to to struggle for his life Lord for those with health needs we we ask for healing and restoration and and a miracle in their lives and Lord we just speak healing and restoration over them in the name of Jesus that you would restore them 
pray for us as a church, as a community, that we would be people who glorify you, that we would be people who are active in making disciples, and, and that when we gather together, it would be a place where you are encountered and your voice is heard.
Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So we are on a sermon series in Ephesians, and today we wrap up the, the first part. Uh, we've broken down Ephesians into three sections, chapters 1, 2, and 3, looking at our identity. What does it mean to be seated in Christ? Seated being the, the key word or, or the theme word for those first three chapters. Uh, Ephesians 4, 5, parts of 6. What does it mean to walk? How do we walk with others? How do we walk in the world? Um, so the first three chapters, looking at our identity uh, then the next section, looking at, ha- at our behavior and how we interact with the world. Last part of Ephesians, uh, last part of chapter 6, there's some instructions on spiritual authority, spiritual warfare, uh, how, we, how we engage with, with the spiritual realm. And the key word there is to stand. What does it mean to stand against the enemy? So, so three key words, seated, seated in Christ, walk, walk in the world, and stand, stand against the enemy. And today we wrap up with the, with, with the first three chapters, with the, with the seated section, with the identity section. And we have covered a lot of stuff, and uh, just want to review some of the stuff that we have covered. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the introduction. We see that the book of Ephesians is written by Paul. Paul is generally considered a, a missionary to the Gentiles, whereas others were, uh, like Peter, were missionaries to the Jews. Uh, it's believed that Paul wrote it from prison, uh, but Paul was imprisoned at least three times that we know of, so it kind of makes it a little bit hard to nail it down. Uh, but he, it was written from prison. It's believed that it was written while he was in Rome. Uh, one of the, the things that makes Ephesians so unique as compared to other of his letters is Ephesians, kind of like Romans, has a very generic tone um, and, and, and also a very positive tone. Also, oftentimes in Paul's writings, you will see that he addresses certain problems, certain situations. He includes lots of personal greetings to people, that kind of thing. It, it seems like some of those letters that he's writing to, he's just, he's just trying to put out fires of just, just problem people in various churches. And, and so he's re- writing in response to that. Uh, Ephesians is very generic. It's actually believed that it was written in such a way that it could, do, that it could be kind of passed around to different churches and just kind of read to all these different churches. So it's... Uh, uh, just a kind of a generic tone. It, it doesn't carry the same level of personalization. Uh, it was it was written though to the saints in Ephesus. Okay, uh, Ephesus was on the western coast of what today is a Turkey. Back then, it was the capital city of a Roman province of Asia. It was wealthy. It was influential. It was a port city, a major center for commerce, for culture, for religious activity. Uh, because it was a port city, there was all kind of trade and travel. Uh, eventually that ended, though, 
uh, because they had cut all the trees down on the hillside, the rain washed all the silt from the mountains into the port and filled it up. And so you no longer boat to Ephesus, you hike into Ephesus. Uh, also, Ephesus was the religious center of that province. Uh, the temples of Artem Artemis was located there. Uh, Artemis was the, the mother goddess, the patron of the city. Uh, the temple even served as a huge bank. Um, I mean, it did loans to, to people, cities, even small nations. It was believed that Artemis was so powerful and th that no one would ever attack the temple because of her power that it made it a very secure financial institution. So this temple served as a massive bank for the region. Uh, perhaps you've seen pictures of the Parthenon of Athens. Uh, similar design, only four times bigger. So that was, that was located in Ephesus. Uh, moving on, then in, in Ephesians 2, chap, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 1, verses 3 to 6, we saw that we are adopted, uh, or at least that's the metaphor that, that Paul uses, that the adoption of metaphor. Um, learning that you are adopted can either be a positive thing or a ne negative thing. If you thought that you were kind of true heir and that you hadn't inherited all this by right and that you were kind of rightfully a, a blood descendant, then to find out that you're adopted is a little bit unnerving. That's why children threaten each other with these kinds of things. You were adopted. Mom and dad keep you for tax refund purposes. Um, my friend got grounded for that one. That was awesome. Um, so stuff like that, right? But on the flip side, if you have known the orphanage, if you have understood separation, if you have experienced the uncertainty of tomorrow, then adoption is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's a thing of security. It's a thing of assurance. It's a thing of love. Also, we see in this section that we are redeemed. Paul says that we are redeemed. Ransomed is a synonymous word with redeemed. Scripture, when Scripture talks about us being redeemed, it means that we are, we are bought back. And he uses this illustration that we're kind of bought back from the slavery of sin. But the ironic thing about the slavery of sin is that it wasn't a bunch of innocents who were captured and hauled off. We went there of our own free choosing. Sin was our choice as mankind, as individuals. We chose sin. We chose that kind of captivity. And so to be ransomed, to be redeemed, not only speaks of being bought or rescued or purchased out of that environment, but it also speaks of our criminal record. Because we were there by our choosing, by our doing. To be ransomed or redeemed speaks of our rap sheet, of our criminal offense, of the felonies in our past, and having all of that wiped clean we see that paul talks about our inheritance the word inheritance is powerful uh, the word inheritance actually incorporates three important concepts with it first it conveys that riches are bestowed upon you an inheritance is someone else's wealth that's given to you secondly it conveys that those riches are given to you but only when death occurs the transfer of the inheritance happens when the individual dies. But thirdly, inheritance conveys that the previous owner wanted you to receive those riches. They wrote you in the will. They had you in mind when, when they put your name in there. So when Christ named you as beneficiary, when he died, riches were bestowed upon you, and those riches 
were specifically named or identified as going to you. This was not just kind of a generic thing of, you know, I'll give some stuff to everybody. You were named specifically, inheritance. Paul moves on. He says that we were sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. I like the word sealed. To me, sealed is a stronger word than locked. If I say something is locked, or if I lock something, I am seeking to protect it simply by brute force. I am hoping that the force of the lock is stronger than the force of the robber, or his crowbar, or whatever it is that he brings with it. And so it's it's a force-on-force contest. But when something is sealed, it doesn't just speak of, of force, it speaks of authority, it's, it speaks of who sealed it. it. It speaks of the consequences that they are able to pass on to you or to force upon you. And, and so when something is, is sealed, right, like a document, maybe, a document might be in a briefcase and it's locked. Well, then you just have to break the lock to read the document. Or the document might be out in the open, but it says this document is sealed by the government, and if you read it, we're going to throw you in prison for 20 years. So a seal carries with it much more weight and power and authority than just to be locked. So we are not locked in the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, we're given the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Wisdom is different than common sense. Common sense is a good decision based on man's perspective. Wisdom is a good decision based on God's perspective. Turning the stove off before you leave the house is good common sense. That's a good decision based on man's perspective. You don't want to start a fire, and then me and my fire buddies have to show up, and it's all messy. Turning the stove off before you leave is all, I would say it's also good wisdom. It's a good decision based on God's perspective. Taking 10% of your income and giving it to the church or charities, not good common sense. According to the world, that is not a good decision. But from God's perspective, that's a good decision. So it's good wisdom. So in Jesus, we have wisdom. We also have revelation. Revelation is you receiving knowledge uh, of a divine spiritual nature. Revelation is you receiving information that you did not have before. The spirit of revelation will teach you things about Jesus that were inaccessible. You cannot fully understand scripture without the Holy Spirit. There is even one point late late in the, in the ministry of Jesus where it talks about that he opened the minds of the disciples so they could understand scripture. The implication is they didn't really get it before until he enabled them to understand it. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. We are called to hope. That's another thing that, that, that Paul tells in this section God enlightens our hearts so we can understand his truth. Christian hope is diff- vastly different from, from worldly hope. We should probably have different words. But it's an important distinction that, that you need to remember. Worldly hope, is, is, it's like a longing or a wishful desire that something will happen. You're, you're desiring deeply that maybe this will happen. Hope is al- Christian hope is almost the exact opposite. Christian hope is absolute assurance that it will happen. It is confident expectation. We know that our future is built on the promises of Jesus Christ. 
and that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit until we, be, until we meet Jesus face to face. Moving on, Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says that we are God's inheritance. Kind of an interesting spin on the inheritance situation here. God's glorious inheritance is you. The saints are his glorious inheritance. God considers you part of his great wealth. You are of value to him. You are, set, you are a rich inheritance to him. And if you look at the past, this makes no sense. But God doesn't judge us on our past. He judges us on our future. Or he deals with us on our future. Excuse me. You are his cherished inheritance. God gives us Jesus. Verse 22, verse 23. He put all things under, the, under his feet and gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and, and is in all. You kind of trim that down and take out some of the poetic wording. Basically, you say, you read that, and he, God the Father, gave him, Jesus Christ, to the church. Uh, Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 4. Paul takes time to explain how much God loved us. We followed every form of sin. We followed the sin that works within us. We followed the form of sin that was in the world. We followed the sin of following Satan. I mean, we just did them all. We just all of them but the remarkable thing about christ's love and sacrifice is that is that we weren't good we weren't righteous we weren't worthy we didn't have anything to offer him and yet despite of that place of not being able to repay him he still died in our place it's remarkable ephesians 2 verses 5 to 6 uh, god made us alive raised us up seated us with christ uh, when you look at those, those verses, it, the grammar is kind of hard to follow. It's kind of all over the, the, the place. But when you break it down, you have one main noun, and you have three main verbs. The main noun is God, and the three verbs are made alive with, raised up with, seated with. And the object of each verb is us, and it happens in Christ. And so when when you kind of remove all the poetic add-ons and just look at the skeleton of that paragraph, what you have is that God made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ. Verse 7, God's publicity stunt is you. Uh, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. God's publicity stunt is you. You are his PR campaign. His media relations, his advertising strategy, his marketing idea is you. I'm not sure I would have gone with that plan, but I'm not in charge. And not only for this age, but for all the ages to come. When God wants to brag to others what he is capable of, he holds up a poster with your face on it. Hope that feels good. Verse 10, we are his workmanship. The word workmanship is delightful because it can also be translated as poetry or work of art. Uh, for me, when I think of workmanship, I think of like two by fours and that kind of stuff. Meh, two by fours. Uh, but when I think of poetry, when I think of works of art, for me, that's far more poetic. That's far more expressive. 
Uh, we talked about that painting, The Night Watch, by Rembrandt in Amsterdam, and its beauty and its magnitude, and, and how that's kind of an example of how we are the work of art, and the detail that goes into a good work of art. God didn't just purchase you, he created you. Uh, Ephesians 2, 11 to 21, God created one new people group. Paul speaks of the division, of the hostility, of the separation between Jews and Gentiles, and how God made us both, w- made us both one, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, creating in himself one new man in place of the two. He does not say that the Gentiles are added to the people of Israel. He does not say that the two groups combined. Rather, he says that God created in himself a new man in place of the two. God created a new thing when he instituted the church. All of us at one point were a people without. We lacked citizenship. We lacked Jesus. We lacked the promises. We lacked the hope. We lacked God. But Jesus shows up and he creates because he is an artistic God. And so he creates one new man and one new church and he brings peace between the two groups. Ephesians 3, verses 1 to 13. God entrusted us with the revelation of mysteries. We did a fascinating tour through scripture looking at this word mysteries and all the mysteries that get revealed in the New Testament and how God considers us stewards of the mysteries and our role in the revelation of those mysteries and how how each book of the Bible uh, or several different books of the Bible reveal different mysteries that are entrusted to us. And here in Ephesians, the mystery that, that is revealed is that the Gentiles also have access to God's church and become part of the people of God. The church is on display to the angelic community. The, com- the angelic community is watching what you do and how we function as the church reflect back on God, good or bad, not only to the seen realm, but also to the unseen realm. And that the spiritual realm is actually more real than the physical realm. And that everything we see will be wiped away and that God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And that God the Father is accessible to us. Through Jesus we have boldness and confidence. And because of of this boldness and confidence that Jesus gives us, it changes how our attitude in our access to the Father. We approach with freedom. We approach with familiarity. We approach with fellowship. So Paul has just spent the entire first half of the book laying these foundations down. He considers that understanding these foundations needs to happen first and is the most important thing before we move on to to phase two. But when you've just laid this kind of foundation, I mean, how do you how do you conclude this? How do you transition out of this? How do you wrap this up? I mean, this is a huge piece of literature. And so Paul does it with a prayer. It's kind of funny that the scholars think that actually Paul started to pray and then he just got completely distracted and so he had to start again. If you look at uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, it starts off with, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then in the ESV there's this dash and this total different change of thought. And he goes, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given. And then he just kind of goes off for about 10, 15 verses. 
And if you look at verse 14, again, he says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. And we don't know, but scholars think that he just started on this idea and then just got completely distracted and went off on a tangent. But he begins, but he begins with this concept of, of kneeling. It was interesting, all, all, all the chatter in the commentaries around the word kneeling. He, he talks about a plural, so, so both knees. Um, and some believe that it wasn't even just kneeling, but he was actually just laying himself prostrate before the Lord. So laying himself flat on the ground. Throughout scripture, we, people, we see people standing, we see people in prayer, uh, sitting, kneeling, lying face down. All manner of postures happen in scripture. I've done a lot of them. I'm sure you've done a lot of them. Sometimes you just need to pace. Sometimes you just need to sit. Sometimes you need to talk out loud. Sometimes you need to be quiet. Sometimes you just need to lay face down on the floor for a while. And all depends on the situation. Prayer posture is an interesting thing. You know, it's been many years since I've read the book of Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. Uh, if you're not familiar with it, C.S. Lewis uh, sort of imagined what a conversation would look like between two demons, a demon and his mentor. And, and, and this one demon is trying to interfere with the life of a Christian, and so he writes to his mentor for advice. And C.S. Lewis picked the demons because he figured that, that was easier for him to imagine than what the conversation the angels would have. So he just goes, I can imagine what the demons would say. We'll just take that route. One of the interesting things, though, in the book that I do remember is that the mentor kind of instructing the, the, the mentee, try to convince them that their posture during prayer doesn't matter. what C.S. Lewis was trying to convey that actually our posture during prayer does matter. It changes your attitude. It changes your engagement. When you pray and worship with others, give them freedom. Give them freedom to pray and to worship as they need to. Uh, and for yourself, if you need to kneel, kneel. If you need to stand, stand. If you need to sit, sit. I don't know if they still do it, but the, the Catholics used to have this great thing in the benches. If you would look behind the benches, it's kind of this long padded bar that would flip down. That's so that you could kneel down, not hurt your knees, because they kind of start to hurt after a while. Wouldn't that be cool? My desire for you and for our gatherings that this would be a place of freedom, where you could worship and pray as you felt that you needed to. You know, one year at, at Trek, we had this young gal who was highly trained in ballet. And we would do worship times, and she came up and she said, would it be okay if, if I dance during worship? Sure, fine. We moved the couch a little bit. It was remarkable, absolutely remarkable, to watch her dance as an expression of worship. It wasn't choreographed. It wasn't preplanned. It was very kind of improv. I told her afterwards, I said, we will move couches, we will move walls, like whatever, whatever you need to do that again. It was fantastic. And sometimes it was engaging to, to watch her worship, and sometimes it was distracting because it was so good. So I just kind of had to tune her out, let her do her own thing, because I just need to focus on the words. Give people the freedom to respond as they need to respond. How horrible for all of us 
had I told her no. Once, several, uh, this was several months ago, Kate actually asked me if she could dance during a worship song. And I told her no, and I regret it to this day. What I should have done is taken her into the back where there was a little bit of space and said, kid, dance your heart out. Paul kneels on both knees because he feels the situation and the prayer demand it. It's okay to let your body reflect the urgency that's in your heart and to reflect what you're thinking, what you're feeling. Please give others the freedom to do so. Paul continues on, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. This was also an interesting one to study. The, the commentaries were all over the place on this because apparently the grammar isn't that clear. And uh, yeah, there's just a lot of ambiguity in what Paul was saying. As an example, in the ESV on this verse, you will read, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named. In the NIV, you will read, from whom his whole family in heaven on earth derives its name. So in one translation, you see every family on heaven on earth. And in the other translation, you say his whole family on heaven and earth. Not only that, but apparently the word family is actually better directed towards fatherhood. And then the other question is these families in heaven and earth, I mean, are we talking about angelic beings? Are we talking about, you know, uh, other Christians who have died and gone before us and waited for us in heaven? I mean, if you figure out all the different variations, there's about a half dozen, dozen different ways that you could word this verse. What's interesting, what I eventually realized, though, is that they're all true. Yes, God is the creator of fatherhood, and true fatherhood comes from, from understanding the role of him as father. Yes, it's true that God is sovereign over all families on earth, whether Christians or non-Christians. Yes, it's true that the church is one family under the fatherhood of God. Yes, even the angelic realm was created by God, and so by default is under the creative fatherhood of God. True, true, true. Here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that God has two families doesn't say that he has one family of Jews, one family of Gentiles. doesn't say that he has kind of like the first-class citizens and the second-class citizens. Paul has been driving home the idea of one family, new family, created out of the two groups. Verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Paul is praying for, for their inner being to be strengthened. Uh, it's kind of a, another way of saying the heart. That would be kind of some of our contemporary language uh, around that. He's praying for their, their heart to be strengthened. And actually you see some, some crossover written in 2 Corinthians. And, and the heart or the inner person is something that needs to be renewed daily. But Paul's prayer is that God will strengthen the inner being, the, the, the inner man, the heart. And that this strengthening occurs through the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit lives within you. He lives in that inner being. That, that, that's where he does his work. Paul ha had done a prayer earlier in Ephesians where he already spoke about the power of God, right? It was the power of God that raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenlies with Christ, um, subjected everything under his authority. Well, that same power raised the believers. Now, in this prayer, Paul is praying that that same power will strengthen your inner being, 
that the power that took Christ, raised him up, seated him in the heavenlies, subjected all authority under the feet of Christ, that that power would be at work in your inner being. You know, there are some numbers I, I, I don't comprehend. When I was a child, I had a pretty good grasp of tens and hundreds. As an adult, I've started to understand thousands and, and perhaps even tens of thousands. I do not understand a billion, and I do not understand trillions. There are some fascinating uh, kind of graphical uh, uh, examples on the Internet to just kind of help you conceptually understand what is a trillion. One of them said that if you spend a million dollars every day, from the day that Jesus was born until now, you would not yet reach a trillion. I mean, it's just, it's just beyond me. It's, it's a number I, I don't grasp. When the power of God, which raised Christ and seated him in the heavenlies, is prayed for us to strengthen our inner being, it's a power I do not comprehend. And I, and I don't think it, it's something I'll ever... I mean, that level of resourcing is amazing. I mean, how do you live and... and, and you know, if your kitchen sink is ho hooked up to the Pacific Ocean, how, I mean, how does that change how you do dishes? You know, you're just like, I'll do everybody's dishes. Not going to run the thing dry. You know, it's just... It's beyond our understanding. Which then, of course, leads us to the second part of Paul's prayer. Verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. There's our word there, strength to comprehend. With all the saints, what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth? And to know the love of God that surpasses knowledge. We just talked about that, big numbers. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul uses two analogies. He uses one from agriculture and he uses one from architecture. A rooted is an agricultural term. Um, the, the grounded is, is an architectural term, but both speak to foundations, to having good foundations. Both of them are also past tense, meaning this happened. You are rooted. A, a, a foundation has been laid. This has already happened. But it's not enough to understand that God is loving or that Christ is loving. The prayer is for an understanding of the dimension or the volume or the magnitude of that love. That you may have strength to comprehend. In the first part, Paul was praying for their heart. At this point, Paul is praying for their mind. He's praying that their mind can comprehend the volume or the magnitude of of the power that is work in their hearts. The power that raised up Christ, raised us up with Christ. Our perception of someone's love towards us affects our, our interactions with them. And in many ways, ironically, it doesn't really matter how much they love us. What matters is to the extent that we believe that they love us. If we feel that they love us a little, eh, we're not so impressed. But if we are convinced that they love us a lot, that changes everything 
suddenly we have respect for what they say. We're more inclined to listen to them, to hear their opinion. Their opinion matters to us. Uh, we don't want to disappoint them. We're more inclined to enjoy their presence. We're careful in how we speak of them. We are very aware of how others speak about them. We defend their character. We advocate for a positive reputation. Understanding the magnitude or the volume of Christ's love for you affects your interaction with him. It's not a matter of how much Christ loves you. He loves you a lot. We have other verses on that. But are you comprehending it? Are you understanding the magnitude of what's involved? You know, in Luke 7, there's the story of a woman who, who interrupts a dinner party to wash Jesus' feet and, and anoint him with oil, none of which had been offered by the host of the party. But the story concludes with this comment by Jesus. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. The ironic part is that no one's forgiven little. We're all forgiven a lot. It's just that some people are more aware of it uh, than others. It is important that we grow in our understanding of what we have been saved from, the horrors of hell, what we have been saved to, the beauty of God, the beauty of heaven, and the means by which we were saved, the grace and the love of God. So Paul is praying for their mind that they would have strength to comprehend. Paul concludes with a short doxology. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul concludes with this short little one sentence doxology. And he cleverly weaves in the heart and the mind again, but, but in reverse order. He says, him who is able to do far more abundantly in all that we ask or think, the mind, according to the power that is at work within us, referencing the power that is at work in the inner being and the heart, to him be glory. And I think that's really the final end of it all. Not the passage, but just all of life. That the work done in us and through us is the purpose of giving him glory. That that is the why behind all of this. That we would give him glory. I believe that, that the task of the church is to make disciples. But more and more I'm thinking that the reason or the driving force behind that. The why of it is to see God glorified. John Piper has a great book in his quote, uh, Desiring God. He writes, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. As we have looked at our identity in Christ and with the truth of Scripture, I mean, just overlooking it, like what's the general vibe on, on how God views you? Do you see belittling, micromanaging, Suspicion, lack of trust. I mean, really, is there anything negative in that list at all? As you look at this list, does it feel like God trusts you? That he is excited about you? That he values you? That he is creative towards you? These aren't opinions that were kind of pulled together out of a lot of self-help books. All we did was look through scripture, start to finish, left to right beginning to end, 
just kind of marched on through it. This is what we came away with. If a human had these kinds of feelings about you, I mean, you'd be inspired and encouraged and you'd be, you'd dream big dreams and attempt great things. And yet this isn't a person. This is the God of the universe who feels this way about you. How does that affect thankfulness and security and his identity? As the worship team comes forward, um, you know, this morning, I'm, I'm not going to give you a lot of instructions on how to respond. Uh, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. But it feels like this is really one where you just need to respond on your own. Uh, I'm not sure of the work that God is doing in each one of you, but I suggest or I, I assume that it's different for each one of you. We've just spent several weeks, I guess a couple months, looking at identity. And this is kind of the final summary, the kind of final summation of your identity in Christ. So what does that do for you? How do you need to respond to God? What conversation needs to happen? What words need to be said? What, what confession, what repentance, what thanks? What aspirations? What dreams need to be rekindled? Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and that you speak to us. Lord, I ask that you would speak to us today and that for each one of us, you would give us a unique, specific word based on your scripture out of Ephesians as to how you view us. Lord, if there are lies that have taken root inside our mind, then we just banish those right now in the name of Jesus. We say no more in Jesus' name. We call them out and we identify them for what they are. Lord, replace those lies with your truth. Lord, identify, if we have believed lies, Lord, I pray that you would identify those to us at this time and that we would be able to take one of these truths out of Ephesians, off this PowerPoint, Lord, and that we'd be able to, to replace that lie with your truth. And Lord, that, that by your spirit, that our mind would comprehend the incredible power of what you are doing in our hearts. Love you, Lord. Amen. Please stand with us.